Hello, and welcome to Calming the Chaos, where we present tips, tools, and techniques to help you find peace in a chaotic world. I'm your host, Tracy Canella, licensed mental health counselor at Lokahi Counseling. This channel and the Calming the Chaos podcast is for those who want self-help and education. It's not a substitute for counseling or psychotherapy. So if you like the information, please subscribe to my channel and share it with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. And now, let the chaos begin. In this episode of Calming the Chaos, I am here with one of my colleagues, Dr. Matt Goldenberg. And Dr. Matt, as I like to call him, is a psychologist, psychotherapist. He's a professor and a teacher, and he is one of our community's valuable resources in understanding the LGBTQ plus communities and other things as well. And when I say LGBTQ plus, here is a little bit of a description of the communities that we're talking about here. And so we're talking about uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning. So in case any of you wanted to know about that acronym, and then this slide actually presents ways that you can look at the individuals that are in this community, pansexual, agender, genderqueer, bigender, gender variant, pangender. There's just so much to understand. I've had the benefit of actually working with uh, Dr. Matt and attending at least one of his trainings. And I'm just so happy to have him here today to uh, present on the unique challenges that are presenting uh, themselves with LGBTQ plus communities. And so without further delay, I will go ahead and add Matt to our show. Welcome, Dr. Matt. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. And I do know that there's just a lot of information out there about the community. And I know you have really helped me to understand and clarify it. So I'm really excited for you to be here to help our guests out today. Great. Thank you. Yeah, so where do we want to begin? I thought that maybe I gave a little watered down version of the community that we're going to be talking about today. But if you wanted to expand on that, I would welcome that just because I know that your knowledge is, is so rich and diverse in, in this uh, area and just help our listeners to know uh, this is a marginalized community and also to help to know the folks in this community. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the LGBTQ community is is basically an umbrella term, and uh, it describes people of all ages, of all genders, of all races, of all classes, of all nationalities who experience uh, gender-based marginalization or sexual orientation-based marginalization. Um, and within that, uh, you'll notice that there is a large amount of potential ways that we describe ourselves. Um, and some of that is marked by generation and other cultural differences. Um, so it's helpful for people to uh, look up the current definitions and also know that, you know, we're constantly changing our language. So I try not to say that this is the exact meaning of this particular word, since that's pretty culturally subjective. Mm -hmm. And how would you say that you uh, 
became involved in this community of people and are really super uh, very active in helping them uh, get their mental health issues and other issues met. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll start by saying that I've had access to the LGBTQ community, um, which is really supported by privileges I've had. For instance, um, I grew up in an urban area in the late 1990s. Uh, I was a teenager then, right? So I could find um, LGBTQ youth spaces that were built just for us. Um, and I had parents who were supportive of me finding those spaces. So I spent most of my teenage years around LGBTQ mentors and other kids in the community. Um, I was a kid who identified somewhere within that rainbow, um, but more importantly, it was really clear that others perceived me to be somewhere in that rainbow. Um, so I, I got access really early on and have just continued to be involved in the community since then. And I like the way you say rainbow as well. I know that's a symbolism and that visual picture, uh, but also the way that I understand it and the way you've taught me to understand it is that we are somewhere in the binary, binary being so male, traditionally male and female, and then all points in, in between. And uh, the rainbow is also a way that you can look at that, right? It is. Uh, there, are, there will be people who say that they identify uh, in the LGBTQ community and uh, believe in a gender binary and that they are on it. There are people in the LGBTQ community who would say, uh, you know, the binary doesn't really exist. I And I personally exist outside of that. Um, so you'll see um, any and all of those experiences within the community. Yeah, and I think uh, as we go into the unique challenges that this community has had, especially during COVID-19 and the pandemic, uh, I think, uh, I would hope that the intention would be for people to be more open to expanding their horizons beyond the binary and wherever people are at, right? Yes. Yeah. I so agree. where do we want to begin about the pandemic? I mean, this has been a huge adjustment for all of us, but especially, and I'm very eager to hear about the experience of this particular community in the pandemic. Where do we wanna start here? Well, I was thinking that we could just start by acknowledging that we're, we're taping this in the end of September, 2021, but probably will be available in October, somewhere around there. October happens to be National LGBTQ History Month. Um, thank you, Obama, for recognizing that officially. Um, October 11th is National Coming Out Day, so it seems to me that this conversation is timely. Oh, yeah. And I had talked to other people who I interviewed on the podcast, and National Breast Cancer Month is also in October. So I did not know this, so thank you for letting me know. This episode is definitely going to be aired hopefully at the end of September to raise awareness of October, which gives us a couple of days, right? Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I, I'd like to um, maybe start to answer this question a little bit more with context about where do we start? Um, I was thinking we could try and touch on the multiple domains of how LGBTQ people, but especially the trans community has been impacted by COVID-19. Um, but I thought that it would be important to begin saying that for a lot of LGBTQ people, COVID-19 has triggered a really deep and, and painful historical trauma. So historical trauma is multi-generational. 
it's um, it signifies that there's been a series of events which um, cause oppression for a specific group of people. You can think of like colonization of indigenous people or Japanese internment camps, camps as some examples of in the United States. Um, in terms of COVID-19, the historical trauma that's related for LGBTQ people is the AIDS epidemic. So let me explain why. The first cases of HIV in America were thought to be showing up in the late 1970s, but we didn't get an official government report until 1980. And by then there, the cases were very few. The HIV virus began spreading really rapidly at a time of intense institutional discrimination against LGBTQ people. Anti-sodomy laws were rampant. LGBTQ people were not considered a protected class. Um, president at the time, Reagan refused to show concern for the spreading virus. Um, conservatives believed, and some apparently still believe in some cases, that AIDS is a punishment for being LGBTQ. So if we go back to 1984, um, Health and Human Secretary, Secretary uh, Heckler announced that the discovery of AIDS suggested a vaccine come out in 1986. That's never happened. Right, so you have to sort of think about what that means for LGBTQ people that since 1986, we've been told by our government that we would have a vaccine. Since then, at least 700,000 Americans have died of AIDS and there is still a lack of necessary funding and attention. Right, so I want to bring this into context because as an LGBTQ person myself, I'm extremely grateful for the COVID vaccine and I strongly recommend it's a matter of social and global responsibility that we accept the vaccine. And it's really painful to see how quickly the global community organized and funded research into COVID when we still lack a vaccine or a cure for HIV. Think about this, in 2019, when we were really um, right on the verge of, the, of our COVID pandemic, about 1.7 million people across the world seroconverted. Seroconverted is, means that they just acquired new HIV case. And so what you're saying, I, I think you're saying, is that the lack of privilege that those in the community had resulted in just kind of letting it fall to the wayside and not a whole lot of attention or research was uh, was taken to develop a vaccine for AIDS. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, to develop a vaccine for HIV. HIV. Yeah, yeah. yeah the virus okay. that causes AIDS. So I'm putting this into the context that anybody of any gender, you know, any race, any sexuality can acquire HIV. But it's been so particularly vicious in the LGBT community and is surrounded by a history of systemic neglect connected to deep trauma around fear and around loss and about how many uh, potential mentors and leaders and change makers have died from HIV in our community, totally unchecked by the government, right? Mm -hmm. So um, this is important because this is a pandemic uh, much like HIV AIDS is, and HIV AIDS continues to be rampant in the world. So. Um, we have another issue now, which is that, uh, you know, COVID um, funding um, has taken what might be taking over some of the places of HIV AIDS funding. So we're continuing to see that neglect. 
Right. And I remember that point in time in history when it was the early 80s and I was in California at the time. And so us in California, we have a big connection, at least where I'm from, which is the Bay Area, a very big connection to, uh, it, well, back then it was just the, the, gay, the gay community, right? Homosexual community. And I remember starting to feel really afraid for them and my friends in that. And it does surprise me now that you go back and look at the history that Ronald Reagan was actually the governor of our state of California when he became president, neglected. And I don't know if it was just him. I don't want to put the blame on him, but it was under his administration where he had the power to either develop a vaccine or not against HIV. Those are my thoughts about what history you've presented. And I do appreciate you presenting the history. Yeah, that's a really good point. Mm -hmm. uh, um, it's well known that, uh, Reagan's press secretary, when asked about HIV early on, laughed, um, you know, at the reporter asking the question. Um, and, you know, keep in mind that we weren't calling it HIV at that time. We called it gay-related immune deficiency or GRID, right? So it was believed that it was really only a pandemic among gay people, and that's absolutely not true. Yeah, and I remember the tensions started to rise when the heterosexual people realized that they could also become HIV positive. I do remember the whole Magic Johnson thing and others who were testing positive for HIV. And then the scenes like the temperature kind of rose about what this really was and what a force it was to be reckoned with. Yeah, that's correct. So can, can you tell me why to date we are still not developing a vaccine for HIV? Well, I, this is a really good question. And it's, it's something that it seems to me there's a lot of different opinions about why this is. Um, it seems like there's a strong factor um, around who's infected, um, that uh, the groups of people who are most likely to be infected may be people who are already are neglected in our systems. LGBTQ people, for instance, and certainly women of color who have been on more of the, the rising group of new HIV cases um, in the last few years globally. Mm -hmm. uh, that could be a big part of the reason. I do also think that another part of this is that there have been some medications that have afforded people much longer and healthier lives with HIV. Uh, they're not cures, but they are uh, great medical coping tools. We also have developed things like PrEP, which is uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's a medication that you can use um, if you think you might be um, exposed to HIV. Uh, so some of those things have, have been advances, um, but I think the point still needs to be made that we are we have no cure, nor do we have a vaccine for HIV. So then in days of COVID, when we have really quickly developed this vaccine and people are prioritizing getting it, then how does a person in a marginalized community like LGBTQ plus feel about that? And, and can I think you probably already spoke to it a little bit, but can you expand upon how this has really affected people in this community? Yes. Yeah, you know, they say that the crisis breeds necessity or breeds necessity which breeds imagination right um it taught us that it's it's actually possible for um governments in different nations to work together um and to to come up with the science that's needed um it's also uh made it clear that um given given enough 
uh, people who are in privileged positions to be uh, vulnerable or targets, um, that speed counts for a lot, right, in terms of public health crisis. So um, to sort of, you know, place the two of them side by side, um, we got a COVID vaccine within months um, that was put together by nations coming together and government funding. Um, now we're, you know, more than 30 years into the AIDS epidemic and no vaccine, no cure. It feels really disappointing. Um, and it also shows us what's possible, right? So that doesn't always have to be disappointing. That can create a lot of hope um, to know that we can do this. Um, the other thing that's sort of interesting as to places parallel is that both HIV and COVID have become incredibly politicized. Um, and in both cases, it's become a real challenge to protect people because of the politicalization of these diseases. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the politicalization of it? I, I understand that the sense of urgency was there for COVID when it wasn't there for HIV. And that that's got to be disappointing for the folks in this community and also possibly could make them angry. I, I was I was thinking that too. Like, why wasn't I, why weren't I, uh, why wasn't I prioritized sort of a thing? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, here's here's what's interesting, though. Uh, with both COVID and HIV, we have um, somebody else in common, and that's Dr. Fauci. Mm. Dr. Fauci was a huge change maker in HIV early on. He was seen at first um, by some HIV communities as kind of an enemy, right? He was connected with the system, um, and uh, he was seemed to be not moving fast enough, um, but kind of slowly over time, I think that, that a lot of people see that he, because he listened to protesters um, who were attending his, uh, his press conferences about HIV, and he started to actually sit with people who are HIV positive and listen to their stories, he became a friend of the community. So um, Fauci is like just one of the many people that's actually um, been at the top of both struggles. Mm. And I do think that's sort of an interesting phenomenon. Um, and it has to do again with that politicalization of like how somebody who was seen as an adversary um, became a friend. Okay. And how do folks in the community now see Dr. Fauci? I cannot keep up on the news fast enough uh, just to, to see what most people think. Uh, there's a very big divide, it seems, in all things. And so how where does the LGBTQ plus community stand with regards to what Dr. Fauci has been doing with regards to COVID and the vaccine? Yeah, so th this would be um, a great survey question to hear what, what people's opinions are. Um, yeah. I'll say uh, one thing to sort of keep in mind is that if, if we um, we think about the influence of somebody like uh, Dr. Fauci, the CDC um, as well, um, these are things that maybe helped inspire our data keeping. Um, and I wanted to, to sort of bridge this question here. Um, we're having a big problem with data uh, in this, in this country, <clears throat> excuse me, in regards to COVID and the LGBTQ community. Um, and that problem with data, um, is that we don't have any data that shows how many LGBTQ people have been infected or vaccinated. 
It's almost like it didn't, they didn't want to track it or, or that it just got lost again, just lost in the shuffle. I believe that this is due to something we call cis heteronormativity. Cis heteronormativity, it's an attitude of bias. It centers and normalizes cisgender or non-transgender people and heterosexual experience, and it blocks inclusion of LGBTQIA experience. We just try and type that out. All right, so let's see if I got that right. Cis heteronormativity, is that right? Yes. Awesome, yes. great. Sometimes I never knew about that term. Yeah, yeah, so, this is, this is a, an attitude of bias that shows up in a lot of places, but it's in, in, importantly with research, it assumes that non-transgender or cisgender and heterosexual people are the norm and that they make up most of the population. So data is exclusionary. So get this, Tracy, in the United States, you know how each state has kind of a different dashboard for capturing COVID-19. So currently about 50% of the states use the word gender and they use binary category of male, female in their demographic data. The other 50% also use binary category of male, female, but they say sex. So in the United States, we use sex and gender as synonyms, but they in fact have totally different meanings. And we only use a binary system. So in Washington, for instance, um, the dashboard as of, uh, I just looked at this past week, September 23rd, uh, 2021, it documents that 569,726 confirmed cases of COVID-19. They think there's probably about 70,000 people out there who are positive and haven't reported. We, in, in Washington, we've hospitalized close to 36,000 people, about um, 7,500 have died. We've vaccinated well over 8 million Washingtonians. That's the data that we know, right? But within that, we have no idea how many of those people are LGBTQ because we do not count that data. If you it's do not like count that, the data. That additional census item that's missing. That's exactly right. The purpose of this is that if you do not count that data, you don't count how many people are LGBTQ, then it doesn't show that there's any health disparity. Therefore, there's no reason to fund anything. Now it goes back to the money, huh? <laughs> I believe it does. Yeah, it, it does suspiciously always go back to the funding and uh, in every big issue that I've ever encountered. It's very interesting that you bring that up. Wow. Well, and, and so our first major block being the vaccine and lack thereof for HIV is now present um, when we have this sort of what you call this cis heteronormativity going on. Cis, cis being our, uh, our gender is consistent with what we are at birth. Is that correct? It means that the, the sex that's assigned at birth is consistent with the gender you identify with as well as the gender that's that you express. You say it so much better than I do. This is why oh, I love practice. having you on there. Because <laughs> because it does what when I explain it, I leave things out that need to be put back in. So uh, yes. So then when we have this mindset in our culture, or the majority has it anyway, the things that are developed and the processes that are put into place are put into place for cisnormative individuals. Is that correct? Yes. 
tend to that's be. right yeah. so um and i'm just using this example that there's no state that's currently tracking specifically lgbtq people in terms of COVID data and in fact we are seeing both a conflation of gender and sex in scientific data which is incorrect as well as only a male female choice you know, we do have uh, nearby neighbors in Oregon. I kind of want to give them a shout out because they have tended to have more progressive legislation um, that Washington follows. And they did include in their in their dashboard, they do include non-binary. Um, however, uh, that does leave still leave out quite a lot of people. Um, and it's really not clear um, how people were able to identify. So I can see that one of the major emotional issues that could be affecting this community is going to be, you know, this, well, this thought of being left out and the feeling of disappointment or even anger at, at being left out. Yes. Yeah. That's the context of the chaos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so th if that wasn't a big enough issue in and of itself, um, I love that we started out with it. Uh, I know there's probably other issues that are that are affecting this this population as well. And uh, and I don't know what you want to highlight, but uh, feel free to bring up any other issues that are that are affecting this community during the pandemic and causing chaos. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for this this opportunity, you know, to share a little bit more. Um, I will say that I think it's been really clear that COVID-19 has highlighted um, pre-existing disparities in every marginalized community. Um, that is to say that if, if a social group was already dealing with a challenge, it's been exacerbated by COVID-19 from job availability, to housing availability, to food security, to educational access, um, and, and so on. So um, there are quite a lot of issues uh, that, that we could discuss here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, many places uh, to go. I don't know what one seems to be, and we, we definitely have time to do as many as you'd like, for sure. What seems to be also something that that would be more of a bigger concern for these folks during the time of the pandemic? Yeah, well, let's see. Maybe when, one thing that I, we could start out with is um, just also bringing in the, uh, the concept of intersectionality, hmm. right? Because I think that's a really important way to look at this. Um, intersectionality realizes the impact of having one or more marginalized community, uh, marginalized identity that leads to um, putting your life in jeopardy. It leads to more health disparities. Um, so for instance, there are places in the United States where black, indigenous, and Latinx folks are seven times more likely to die from COVID-19 than white people. Wow. You sure do know your statistics. I, I try to. I try to because, you know, it's important to, to understand what the impact is. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to kind of broad speak, broad speak about these health disparities, but to have really done the research, it helps you understand the urgency. Absolutely. Yeah, so when we talk about intersectionality, do you wanna say a little bit more now that I've got the word on the screen and people can see it? 
Yeah, sure. So um, this term has been around um, um, quite some time, although it's become much more popular, I think, um, uh, more recently. Um, the term was uh, is largely credited with being coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. She's a legal uh, scholar um, who was writing about the impact of being denied employment um, as a Black woman. And so really what she's talking about here is uh, if you think about the many different aspects of your identity, um, things like uh, your gender, your race, your class, your uh, disability status, um, your national identity or national origin, right? Um, there are some places where those things overlap and they create an intersection. Um, if you have more than one marginalized identity, across your your whole profile how you see yourself um, you may be at risk for creating greater health disparity um, so i bring this up right because it's important that we think not just about sort of the impact on lgbtq people in COVID 19 but that we include also uh, the impact on uh, black indigenous folks of color and people who happen to hold both of those identities there's so many intersections that I'm thinking of in my head right now, just how mm -hmm. many different intersections uh, there can be. And it's so I guess it is easy for people to be a little bit blurred about that and maybe just want to keep it simple uh, and just think think in terms of, of, of male, female, heterosexual, uh, homosexual. And, and that's not the truth with, with today's uh, world, is it, Matt? It's not the truth with today's world. It's not the truth with yesterday's world either. Yeah, good, good point for sure. Yeah, so being aware of how populations can intersect and how different populations can be and have been affected by not only this pandemic, but other things in the past, I think is really starting to open my eyes. And I thought I was informed. I always feel like you inform me even more when we talk so, or when Thank I you. attend any of your, your lectures. So I, I really, really appreciate this. So. Is there is there any truth to the I mean the other life domains that have been affected by this uh, this community has been affected by like the economic loss of income and family uh, family stuff what sort of speaks to you with with that because I know that uh, you know those are popular buzz topics of like this is affecting all of us uh, I'm really interested to know in particular how it's affected this community. Right, right, okay. So I'm so glad that you brought this up. Um, what we can do um, is uh, reference some of the, the research that we already have on the lives of trans people. A really good um, source for that is the 2015 US Trans Survey. It's really still one of the most robust surveys that looks at the lives of trans people. Any of your listeners can Google it, it's free <laughs> online and you can read that. Um, it looks at about 28,000 trans adults included 50 states and um, District of Columbia, American Samoa, uh, Guam, Puerto Rico and US military bases that are based overseas. Um, so it has a, quite a lot of incredible data. Um, so if we sort of start from, okay, what, what was going on with the community 2015 prior to COVID, um, there are some disparities I think we should highlight. One is that um, they found that 40% of people who responded 
have attempted suicide at some point in their lifetime. That's nine times the attempted suicide rate in the general population. Wow. wow. We, they also found um, that nearly a third of the respondents were living in poverty compared to 12% of the general U.S. population. Uh, contributing to that um, high rate of poverty, the respondents had a 15% unemployment rate, which is three times higher than the unemployment rate in the general U.S. population. At the time of the survey, it was about 5% of Americans were unemployed. We also, they also found that people were less likely to own their own home. Um, only 16% of respondents said that they owned their home compared to 63% of the U.S. population and about a third have experienced homelessness at some point in their life, um, including 12% within the last year. So the economic conditions in this community were already fraught. Hmm. Um, clearly, COVID-19 has had a remarkable effect on our economy. For an already struggling population. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So the, the 2015 uh, trans survey is available if you just Google it and you can find out more about how this population was already struggling in the ways that we are struggling as a nation because of the pandemic and as a world as because of the pandemic. But it just made it even harder for these folks uh, in, in the pandemic, correct? did make it really hard for our people. Um, there's there's a couple of other aspects of that, uh, which is that because of the high rate of poverty and the high rate of employment discrimination, um, trans folks may be more likely to work in underground economies. So an underground economy is anything that's not monitored, something like sex work, for instance. So in those working conditions, worker protection is basically non-existent, right? Mm -hmm. It's extremely difficult to work from home to utilize social distancing or have knowledge of other people's vaccinations rates or use, right? These are all important ways that privileged people protect themselves from COVID-19 regarding our jobs. And that might not be available for everybody. Good point. Yeah, I hadn't really considered that the availability of the jobs are gonna put them, likely to put them more at risk because they're, they're not able to either work uh, you know, from home or do things that are enable them to figure out how well they're going to be protected against other people they come into contact with, right? Right. Yeah, this mm -hmm. is something that um, so many working class people have been struggling with. While uh, in many cases, we call them essential workers, um, grocery store workers here in Washington, Starbucks uh, employees are actually considered essential workers mm -hmm. um, because of how many Washingtonians are employed by Starbucks. Um, but that's just sort of an example that uh, you have less ability to protect yourself from COVID in those spaces. So right. we think about who makes up the majority of the working class in the country. And we do see an overemphasis of LGBTQ people and an overemphasis of Black, Indigenous, and folks of color. Right, right. Wow. So this is really opening my eyes to some, you know, what, what happened to be concerns on my radar, but you just went and took it a level or two deeper than that, in that these conditions were already problems for this community and just made it worse. And, and in your practice, I know you see uh, quite a few individuals from this community. Are you mm -hmm. noticing sort of a trend emotionally about how people are feeling 
through this pandemic in this community? I am noticing uh, trends. Um, I mean, one thing that I think uh, quite a lot of folks are dealing with is the effects of isolation. So let's put this in, into some queer context once again, right? A lot of trans folks are um, still living with family or housemates that don't affirm their gender due to the economic constraints that have been worsened by COVID-19. This is really important because we know that when people don't have their gender identity affirmed across all social contacts that they interact with, psychological distress occurs. Um, in 2020, in the Trevor Project, which is a phenomenal project I recommend people look up, um, great resource uh, on issues in the national spotlight of LGBTQ youth. They have a survey they do every year, 2021, I think might be out already. But in 2020, they found um, in their survey that trans and non-binary youth who report that their pronouns were respected by all or most of the people in their lives attempted suicide at half the rate of those who did not have their pronouns respected. That means that respecting each other's pronouns is actually a form of suicide prevention. So let's just imagine the toll for people who due to economic constraints are forced to live in homes where their identity is not respected or forced to stay in jobs or at schools where their identities are not respected. You know, that was that was actually a pretty heavy piece of information you just you just gave here, because I know that I'm seeing more and more people do put their pronouns as we both have our pronouns on the screen here that others either do not and or they haven't gotten into the habit of it, which I admit that I'm not really great at and or they know the pronouns of the person or the preferred pronouns of the person they choose not to use it or choose not to uh, be mindful of those things and i had no idea that that was one of the factors that's connected to suicide can you say a little bit more about that yes yeah for sure um i do think that for for people who in social spaces and professional spaces, almost always have their pronouns assumed correctly. Um, I do think that it's a blinder for folks, you know, to not to be able to maybe not imagine what it's like um, when your pronouns are not respected. Um, but in general, it leads to not just feeling that you're excluded and not wanted, but it leads to hopelessness. If you think of the impact for a child growing up whose pronouns are not respected in school, that school is representative of a potential workplace, right? Or what it would be like to be an adult, right? So we see that long uh, over the long term, um, especially youth, they start to lose hope about having a life in which they feel respected and included by something as simple as a pronoun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, and when you say that as something as simple, I, I do want to go into ways that we can and, and not we just you and me, but the ways that the world can open up their minds and hearts, I guess, and, and be able to do more to honor this population, just like we honor everybody else. I mean, I think it would be great if we honor everybody, but those in marginalized communities are especially ones that we, we kind of need to do some catch up on. Am I right about that? I think you're so right about that. Yes. What What is it that we can do? Those who 
are are listening to what Dr. Matt and I are talking about and really would like to be able to do something for your local folks in the LGBTQ plus communities wherever you live, is there any are there any suggestions that you can give us out there who who really do care about doing something? Yes, yes, for sure. I mean, you know, first of all, just sharing your podcast space for this issue and putting your pronoun up is a step and it's an important one, right? Because mm -hmm. now everybody who gets access to this has had a role model, right? So th that's incredibly important. Um, as, as far as, um, you know, in thinking about how to create support in other spaces, my plea for everybody listening is no matter what your field of work is, um, please get trained on what LGBTQ inclusion looks like. If you're a teacher, you're a therapist, a nurse, an attorney, manager at a store, it doesn't matter. We need strategies of inclusion in all places. Mm -hmm. Well, that's certainly where I got my start was with you. And I do want to take some time here to put up some information about Dr. Matt. If you go to his website, he is available at drmattgoldenberg.com. And he's got a really cool website and a lot of things that you can take from it. He's a great resource in our community. And if you look here, he does have some trainings that he's uh, offering and resources. And uh, so you'll see his smiling face on his website. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you want to say a bit about your website or about the, the resources that you have uh, therein, Dr. Matt. Yeah, thank you for for um, for putting that up. Um, I certainly I do have CEU approved trainings that are coming up. Um, I have a series in October, and then they repeat in January. Um, so I would really love for people to attend those. Um, I also offer consultation training um, services for organizations as well as individuals. And on the um, trainings tab of my website, you can see some of the organizations I've worked with. Uh, which are inclusive of both small uh, nonprofit communities as well as state agencies. Um, I also want to do just sort of a shout out of a couple of other resources that are really helpful. Um, we, uh, Tracy, we know that that your work um, is uh, centers a lot around uh, disordered eating and, and helping folks with that. So let's give a shout out to the Fed Up Collective. So you can go to fedupcollective.org. This is a group of um, trans and, and BIPOC folks who are doing work specifically around eating disorders and see eating disorders as a social justice issue. Um, and there's some fantastic resources from blogs to support groups. You can check that out. The Trans Lifeline, so it's translifeline.org, is a crisis line that's led and for trans folks. So trans folks talking to trans folks, um, a fantastic organization. Um, I did mention the Trevor Project in terms of their survey, but they also have an incredible youth peer-led line that um, includes also a text space. So it's another place to get support um, should anybody need it. Thank you so much for those resources. And yeah, if you are interested in more information, uh, visit Dr. Matt's website. And yeah, his, uh, his website is www.drmattgoldenberg.com. You did mention that you have some trainings and I noticed that here is one of them. And that is actually going to be 
Now you can't really see because my banner is in the way of part of it, but uh, October 16th, uh, this is uh, Bridging the Gaps, Mental Health Care for Gender Dysphoria. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so this one came about because I've been doing the six hour uh, CEU training um, for, for years. And I just kind of updated and continued to do it. Um, but people have been asking for something a little bit more intermediate. Um, for instance, in the mental health world, uh, we have to often write letters of referral for transgender people to get medical care. Um, and there's really virtually no training on how to do that. So I answered that call. Um, mm -hmm. We talk about that. I also talk about what age-appropriate interventions look like. I talk also about gender dysphoria and make sure that it's distinguished from other diagnoses that people tend to get confused. Um, and finally, give recommendations for feminist and systems-based interventions. All of that is really super good information. I know you just spoke at our IADEP chapter, our eating disorder chapter meeting, and I really learned quite a bit. And there's always so so much to learn. And Matt, you're a fabulous teacher for sure. Thank the, you. The date on that is October 16th, and that is through Zoom. And mm -hmm. then do you happen to have the January date since my emblem is covering up the January date? I think that's through Zoom as well. It is. Both are on Zoom. Um, you go to my website under trainings and it will um, bring you to the brown paper tickets oh. link. It's January 29th. January um, 29th. Yeah. So those are just two offerings of dates. Um, so people can uh, have two choices. Yeah. So if you are actually working with clients who have gender dysphoria, then this might be a good training for you, right? Yes. Or, and here's, here's what I often suggest though, Tracy, is get this training because if you don't have trans folks in your practice, it is by design. To borrow, borrow the words of Ijuwu Amaulu, right? Meaning that um, you have not done your work to being have your practice be inclusive. If you do have trans folks, but you haven't yet received training, then you don't know actually what you're missing in the client's in the client's story, right? Mm -hmm. So what often happens is providers will call me in a sort of panicked way of, oh no, I have trans people. What should I do? Or I don't know how to fit this service. And I say, hey. When you realized that you had trans folks, um, did you get training? And people were like, well, no, <laughs> right? So I say, hey, please get training um, mm -hmm. because if you uh, have folks and you are not trained, right, then it's actually an ethical issue. Uh, you're not supposed to serve those you're not trained to work with. And if you don't have people, then it suggests that your practice is not inclusive. Right, that is exactly how we met in that first one. And I, I, I did kind of come to you in a bit of a panic because, you know, if, if I didn't know anything or if I didn't know enough to serve that, I, I did consider it an ethical issue. So I was really super glad you had room for me. So you do individual consultations still with therapists or people who want to learn more? Absolutely. As well as supervision for those who are not licensed yet. Great. And do you, are you able to do that out of the state of Washington since it is consultation and it's not counseling? Is it, is it available to people out of Washington state? Just as a curiosity question for people who may be listening from other places. Yes, um, it is. And I've also been able to provide training cross state, especially now in this remote world, it's much easier. 
Yeah. This is another training. I, I guess it's the same one. No, this one is actually on October 1st. This is the six hour training that I referenced um, that I've been doing for years and it's just being updated every year and then I offer it again. So there's two dates, October 1st, which is this Friday, but there's that second date also of January 14th. Okay, got it. Great. Wow. Well, so, so many information pieces to put together and you definitely have had me thinking about the population and how I could better support LGBTQ plus communities. I guess doing this podcast is, is part of it, but I think, I think in general, just opening your mind up to possibilities and, and listening and asking uh, respectful questions, being able to just be, uh, you know, like you would with, with anybody, uh, be curious and respectful when you are asking questions for sure. Um, anything else that you'd like to add as far as uh, what we could either do or information about you, population, just any kind of closing thoughts that you can think of? Um, I do think that we should just add um, sort of in closing that um, the LGBTQ community is an incredible resource of resiliency and wisdom and um, in cultural traditions. Um, so while it, we, I wanted to spend time talking about the issues that, that really um, are confronting LGBTQ people, I, I want folks to understand how incredibly strong and beautiful and brilliant this community is. And I hope that people are excited to interact with us. Oh, yes. And my experience has been exactly that. Some of the richest conversations have come from people who are you know, just not considered uh, the, the, what they're, the, what would you call it, majority population or, you know, mm -hmm. I, I really have gotten a lot of learning and appreciation from, from any kind of interaction with people who don't think like I do, don't look like I do. It's, it's been such a rich experience for me in general to do that. So I would encourage everybody to do that as well. Just get interested, be interested. It was so great having you on the show and thank you for highlighting that about the resiliency of this community. Uh, my heart goes out to them and you and whatever I can do uh, to support them and you and your work, Dr. Matt. Thank you again for being on Calming the Chaos today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Calming the Chaos. If the information in today's podcast was helpful, please consider subscribing and share it with your friends. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. You can also go to my website at www.lokahicounseling.com for more resources for calming your mental and emotional chaos. This includes a CD I created that teaches you how to practice mindfulness in less than 10 minutes. So check it out. Thanks again for listening. And I look forward to sharing my next podcast episode with you. In the meantime, take care.